What's up, y'all? It's Drewski, and I've teamed up with Mountain Dew to produce a hilarious new basketball podcast called The Dew Zone with Drewski. Learn the backstories of your favorite ballers and celebrities like Jamal Murray. Did you have like a favorite team? Was it the Raptors at the time or no? Was the Raptors even started around that time? Come on, bro. I ain't that old, fam. <laughs> You're talking like I'm 50. Taylor Rooks, Asia Wilson, and many more. You won't want to miss this. Listen to The Do Zone with Drewski on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you listen to podcasts. To burn it all down, the feminist sports podcast you need. We are so happy you're here. On today's show, we have the excellent and righteously angry Shireen Ahmed, a writer, public speaker, and sports activist in Toronto, the brilliant and hilarious Brenda Elsie, a professor of history at Hofstra University in New York, the tenacious and intelligent Lindsay Gibbs, a reporter at Think Progress, and me, I'm Jessica Luther, freelance journalist and author in Austin, Texas. First, we want to give a shout out to all our patrons who are supporting this podcast through our ongoing Patreon campaign. You make this podcast possible and we are forever and always grateful. If you would like to become a patron, it's easy. Go to patreon.com slash burn it all down. You can pledge as little as $1 per month, but if you donate more, you can access exclusives like an extra Patreon only podcast segment each month or our monthly newsletter or even do your own burn pile. And speaking of burn pile, I thought we'd kick off the show by talking about the upcoming halftime show for the Super Bowl this weekend. You guys, Justin Timberlake is back. Does anyone remember his last appearance on the Super Bowl stage? Yes. <laughs> yes, I do, Jess. Yes? You do? Yes, I do. It was 2004. He says that they've made peace. He's made peace with Janet Jackson, I don't everybody. give a so. crap. <laughs> he... Wait, are you saying are you saying cry me a river? <laughs> what goes around comes around. Oh my god. Oh. <laughs> I would be almost interested because I hear that Justin Timberlake has rebranded himself as a white guy. So, I guess we'll see what happens. Well, look, I would like to say that that halftime show, beyond the fact that Justin Timberlake is a horrible human being, that controversy overshadowed what was a fantastic Super Bowl where Jake DeLome actually outplayed Tom Brady. And I would like everyone to remember that, that Jake DeLome had a higher quarterback rating than Tom Brady. We're not going to talk about the last minute of the game for Panther Sands. That did not exist. But once again, Amira, I hope you're listening, that Jake DeLome had a higher passer rating than Tom Brady, and that that should have been the takeaway from the game. Instead, it was not. Well, not to defend JT or anything, but he did he did say he thought that the treatment of Janet Jackson was really unfair oh. and that he got off very easy. I don't get him. No, 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 no. But I think the bigger picture is that the fact that we're offended by a nipple that literally yeah. nurtures humanity while people bashing their brains against one another is termed family entertainment. It is why we can't have nice things. It is like, what's wrong with us? This is true. Hashtag justice for Janet. Justice for Janet. Hashtag for Sunday. All right. <laughs> so, so now on to more somber, but infinitely more important topics. Get those blowtorches out because this week on Burn It All Down, we're going to update y'all on the deserved fallout from the Larry Nasser case and then talk about whatever in the hell is going on with the English Football Association. 
Then I interviewed two reporters, Nora Princiati of the Boston Globe and Kimberly Martin of the Washington Post about the Patriots and Eagles in preparation for the Super Bowl this Sunday. And we'll cap it off by burning things that deserve to be burned, doing shout outs to women who deserve shout outs and telling you what is good in our world. Let's get into it. It's been quite a week since our last episode. I feel like that's the understatement of the year. The effects of the Nasser case came rolling down this week. Brenda, do you want to get us started? Yeah, we've learned this week uh, a few distressing further facts about the case. And it appears that the number of girls and women who Nasser assaulted is closing in on 200. We've seen the web of accountability expand, which we can only hope is gratifying to survivors and definitely needs to continue. Luanna Simon, the president of MSU, resigned, along with athletic director Mark Hollis. USA Gymnastics announced its entire board of directors will resign. But we know at least 14 trainers and coaches knew of the abuse as far back as 1997. So I think we'll see further scrutiny land on on the lower levels of the administration in, in the coming weeks. In addition, the NCAA and IOC have indicated they'll pursue investigations, whatever that means. It's not precisely clear how the state legislature will proceed or the attorney general, but it's coming down the pipeline. And it's interesting to think about Penn State and former President Graham Spanier, who was sentenced to jail time. And and though he's appealing, I might imagine that we see you know, similar moves in Michigan, though it depends since Pennsylvania law has a statute that they used to this Penn State cases, which are the statute of engendering the welfare of children. And I'm not sure how the Michigan attorney general will proceed in that sense. What gets at me, though, about the way this conversation is going is that it has tended to focus on sports, which is obviously really important to us, the role of sports in the university, what they get away with, how how these systems of power are protected. But it's also about a culture that almost elected Republican Roy Moore to the goddamn Senate. And from sports to advertising to toy companies, Girls are sexualized constantly. They're not taken seriously, not believed on so many levels. And it has to do with just larger issues in our society of of not valuing women. And yeah, I'm talking to you, Luanna Simon, women not valuing women, which is, of course, you know, in a sexist society, women participate in their own domination. So I want to stay on Nasser, but I just want to make a point that the brave survivors, athletes and not, have given us just a lot to think about this week. Yeah. Lindsay? Yeah, I think there's so many ways the conversation needs and has to go now. And I think that's a difficult thing because our attention span is so short, right? So, you know, how do we how do we have all these conversations at once? And how do we make them productive? And that's something I think that I don't know the answer to. And I don't know what what's happening next. But what I don't want to get overlooked is how much these women changed everything with by bearing their souls. I mean, when the Indianapolis Star first released its investigation back in 2016 into the mishandlings of USA Gymnastics or how into how USA Gymnastics had mishandled sexual abuse complaints, now wasn't even focusing on Nasser, but it was a it was about the systemic uh, issues there. The U.S. Olympic Committee issued a statement saying that the U.S. that USA Gymnastics was one of its, you know, foremost partners in preventing abuse (laughs) after that. And the USA Gymnastics, you know, also released a statement saying that, you know, it had the utmost 
concern and, you know, was being absolutely proactive about these cases. So, you know, the NCAA, while these women were speaking the first few days, the president, Mark Emmert, said, I don't have enough information to have an opinion on this, you know, and that was after about day three of the testimonies. You know, by day seven, you know, he they'd announced that the NCAA was fine, was doing an investigation. Every I have a had a list, I think, progress of all of Nasser's enablers. And I wrote it like, you know, the first couple of days of the trial. And they're the only person who had suffered any sort of accountability was you had the the was Kathy Clegas, the former gymnastics coach. Afterwards, I could make an update to almost every injury. And that was so powerful to go back. And I, it's devastating that these women had to bear their souls like this and, you know, put their trauma on display for everyone. But it also changed so much because so many people don't understand what sex being a victim of sexual assault really means and what it really does to your life. People, people think, Oh, it's bad. And you know, they hear a high number and they get just completely horrified, but they don't until you have woman after woman talking about how it literally, you know, ruined their lives (laughs) and, you know, the extent of the damage and how it hurt families and the extent that this systemic abuse enabled this that's when things started to change. And I hope that we can keep pushing forward. Yeah, I'm interested to see how much accountability happens once the cameras turn off. I think that will be a really interesting lesson from all of this as we go forward. Shireen. Just um, in terms of the domino effect of the organizations, like Brenda had mentioned, the president of MSU resigned, and then we saw the uh, USA Gymnastics Board I think that there's been some discussion too about how, the responsibility criminally or legally of these adults who knew. And I don't know, I'm not a lawyer, but the discussion around that, because other than resigning from cushy positions, what actually happens? What happens here? Do they just step away from those roles? And I, as someone who is acutely aware that the healing process for survivors is a long, a lifelong process and what that looks like and for them, what it might look like. Because you had testimonies of people saying that they went to these specific people, these, you know, coaches were aware, admin were aware at Michigan State, and it was just ignored. And beyond, you know, let's just commit to losing our jobs and let's go forward and pretend and say that we'll believe girls and women. What really happens here and what does justice look like? It can look like many things. And I'm wondering a lot about that this week. Yeah, I think there's so many things to say about this. I mean, it's just been, it's hard to sort of quantify in any way, like what this last week has been like. And one thing that's remarkable on some level is how big the media actually got about this. And I, Lindsay, I totally agree with you that it's these women like putting themselves you know, on display for the world and talking about the horrific things that happened to them. And, you know, kudos to the media for finally showing up. Like, it's, it's always hard to like, Except give people Fox. credit for finally. Except well, that's Fox. where, yes, exactly. <laughs> Fox Sports, right? And I do, like, I want to mention this because it just makes me so angry. They didn't cover Nasser at all. Like, literally, like, literally 0%. And there's a Deadspin article about this. And it has the most amazing update. 
And it says, quote, a reader points out that in April 2016, Fox Sports finalized a 15-year agreement reportedly worth more than $150 million with Michigan State for the school's multimedia rights, according to the Lansing State Journal. And I just keep thinking, especially with the huge ESPN article that came out on Friday that Paula Levine did that's amazing and goes after so much of what has happened at Michigan State over the last however many years. I don't, you know, what decade or so. The amount, the way that these huge college systems, I'm obviously deeply invested in this idea because I've written a book about it, how corrupt all of this is. And then we even see it, that report about Fox Sports and how it spills over directly into what the media will cover. I mean, that they could just completely ignore this is unbelievable when you look at everything else, all the other media who finally showed up. So, I mean, I don't, it's, it's, um, oh, it's so angry. It makes me so angry. Yeah, I think that that's a great point. And a lot of this is holding our breaths and seeing what happens next. And look, I think all of us can do our part by continuing to ask the questions, whether you're a fan, whether you're, you know, an alumni, whether you're, you know, a journalist with a small platform or a journalist with a big platform or, you know, people with a podcast, you know, continuing to ask these questions is the only way to honor what these victims have done. And that's the only way forward. And I mean, I think that the, the tough part is that this is, this is so much bigger than Nasser on both ends. So you have Michigan State, whereas Jess mentioned, and Paul Levine and ESPN did a huge investigation into, you know, mishandlings of sexual abuse complaints throughout the, you know, the athletic department. And at the same time, on the USA Gymnastics side, you have that, you know, we've talked here about how much bigger the the enabling of abuse within USA Gymnastics has been, but also within the US Olympic Committee. You know, this is part of the US Olympic Committee and just just, you know, a couple of years ago, there was a lot of stuff in swimming. There were, you know, 14 yes. people who came forward with allegations. There's just horrific stories in swimming that are very similar to gymnastics. Taekwondo has had a lot of problems with this recently. The U.S. Olympic Committee has sent letters or excuse me, Congress has sent letters to the U.S. Olympic Committee, USA Gymnastics, USA Taekwondo and USA Swimming about an investigation into their practices. And I think that's good. I think we have to have... You know, you know, I don't rely on our government for much these days, <laughs> but we need to get some subpoena power, you know, into this. We need to get people testifying and we need to not forget to figure out who knew what. And the accountability of that is just immeasurable. And there, there are other ways forward, too. Um, there's going to be a vote or hopefully a vote in Congress this week to pass an act that makes all people involved with the IOC, you know, mandatory reporters that makes a certain amount of training a requirement. And once again, I don't think our government is the way to solve everything, especially the way it's going this this way. But I know that a lot of victims are very excited about the possibility of this legislation passing through the House. And I hope that we just continue to, to look at this on a bigger scale. But at, at the same time, what scares me is how much of this is a cultural thing within these sports. How much of this abuse is perpetuated because we tell these girls and their families and boys at times that, you know, that, oh, the Olympic team only selects five people or only selects three people, you know? Oh, in order to, oh, only so many people get to be trained by this, you know, world-class coach. You don't want to, you know, mess up the system by, by speaking up. And, and how much of this culture is run on emotional and verbal abuse <laughs> that really facilitates an environment that 
keep sexual abuse and physical abuse quiet. So that's the really, really tough part to change. And I don't know how you go about it. Yeah, I totally agree. Like, I mean, we talked about this last week, but just the way to coaching in general can be so abusive. So then we're asking these young girls to identify for us other kinds of abuse and call it out. And that no wonder it's so confusing for them, right? And I I just totally agree with you, Lindsay, about that that's going to be very hard. The, The accountability that's coming in the future is going to be very hard work. And I'm, you know, I just don't know if it's going to be sustainable for a lot of people. Brenda. Yeah, I'm really interested in terms of protecting many of these women as students and from this type of a culture of abuse at the NCAA investigation. As far as I remember, Luana Simon was chairing the NCAA. Am I Am I wrong in that? It was in 2013 and 2014, yeah. Okay, so precisely when she ignored a Title IX investigation and kept Larry Nasser on the books to abuse women for the next 18 months. Right. So, <laughs> yeah. so I've always kind of wondered, and I know Jessica and I have talked about this, and she's written this book and has a lot to say too, But I, so I want to ask you guys, I mean, do you have any sort of faith that the NCAA could play a role in changing the culture, at least for those who are athletes. I mean, many of these victims were not athletes, right? And they're they're just as valuable and brave. But I wonder about the NCAA investigation into this and what you guys think. Oh, I don't think it'll do anything. I don't trust the NCAA to do anything well. And I've said this before, and I think I've said it to you guys particularly, like I'm of two minds about the NCAA. Like I wish they cared about athlete safety in a whole range of ways, including gendered violence. And that would be nice. But it would, even if they did, it would all feel like lip service based on how they treat athletes in general and their care for them. So I don't really have much faith. And especially after everything that happened with Penn State, which was handled very poorly on their end and everything ended up being walked back because they don't actually have rules about this. There's something, there's no rule breaking that's happening. So yeah, I'm, I mean, I'll, I'll never say anything terrible about the NCAA though. So I think that's sort of where I'm left at this point. Yeah. I, I took a look, you know, when I served on this athletic committee at, at Hofstra, you can get a 445 page manual every year as to what the NCAA is about <laughs> and reading yes. it, which is, which is amazing. And reading it is pretty interesting because it actually doesn't, the purposes, the stated, you know, top purposes of the NCAA don't actually say very much about protecting the athletes themselves. It talks about protect to making rules, right? Play governing. It talks about intercollegiate athletics records, it speaks to promoting physical fitness and it speaks to eligibility and copywriting. <laughs> of, course, of course. Of course. Of course. Of course. So I yeah. almost feel like this is an organization that has become something to prevent athletes from unionizing and making any sort of, I don't know, and, and making organizations that can deal with their universities on their own. It feels like this is just some giant intermediary. So yeah, I have a similar feeling about it. I was just curious as if I was being too pessimistic. Yeah, the NCAA seems to exist to protect programs that then exist to protect themselves, right? So it, yeah, again, looking forward for accountability, I don't think we're going to find it through the NCAA. Really, sorry, really quickly, there's a... <laughs> The Washington Post did a big investigation into how the IOC had handled all this stuff. And one of the things they wrote in that still sticks with me. And it 
it's, you know, it reminds me of what you guys are talking about with NCAA, which was that for a while they were afraid to put anything in their bylaws about sexual abuse or about sexual harassment or even in their manuals because they, the lawyers were afraid that would make them more liable because it would prove they could be proved in court that they knew the extent, you know, they knew that these measures needed to be in place and that, you know, they were afraid that any mention of this would make them more easily be able to be sued. And that just like makes you sick because they're really more worried about being sued than they are about protecting, you know, the athletes. And that kind of sums it up. Shireen, I know we've talked repeatedly on this program about English Football Association, much of it negative, maybe all of it negative. We wouldn't want to break that pattern. So uh, what have they done this time? Well, Jess, my update will make you very proud in that I'm consistently saying that the blundering FA has continued to ruin, perhaps, again, any possible situation where there could be hope for moving forward. Now, for our listeners who have followed the saga of the FA, the Lionesses, and their now ousted coach, Mark Sampson, it's not over with the coach drama. So we know that the FA continues to be complicit in allowing misogyny, anti-blackness, and xenophobia to continue to grow and breed and fester. Now, they needed a new ad coach, the Lionesses, who are currently ranked third in the world. So what does the FA do? Find the most unqualified man with sexist tweets to boot. So now what we're talking about is, sure, Phil Neville. Phil Neville, yes, we all know him from the famous class of 92. And then he played with Everton. He's actually never managed an elite national women's team. Never, ever. Now, I tried to I tried to redo this intro a couple times, and I just ended up screaming at the screen because I was so... <laughs> angry. So our friend David Rudin of Howler actually wrote a lovely little uh, piece about this. And when I say lovely, I mean scathing. And this is what he said, quote, Neville was never the FA's first choice for the job. This may have been because he had no qualifications to speak of. It may also have been because it appears he didn't bother to apply for the job. His name, <laughs> oh my God. His name, Louis Taylor reports, only came to the search committee's attention because a broadcaster suggested it. That's how the sausage fest gets made, end quote. Nice. Now, this is absolutely true. He didn't actually apply for the job. And in the process, we know that the FA, who was like notoriously bad with tweets, because we remember when the Lionesses came back from Canada in 2015, the FA famously tweeted out, congratulations, Lionesses, you can go back to being teachers and wives tomorrow. Oh, that's right. And, you know, we haven't we we <laughs> we haven't that. forgotten though. Those of us who are paying attention, FA, we see you. We know this is happening. Now, this decision was that was announced on Twitter, and to continue Twitter, like the FA, sorry's Twitter malfunctions constantly and just willful ignorance. They tweeted out congratulations to Phil Neville without actually tagging the women's team in the tweet. So they didn't even mention the team that he would be coaching when they made the announcement. Like, this is how narcissistic this is and male-centered. Now, we had a couple of coaches, like 
Um, Mo Marley, who was the assistant coach, was completely overlooked for this position. But then we recently have Caroline Morace, who's an Italian player, and Vera Powell, who's now the Houston Dash head coach, talking about this. And I think that their comments are extremely important in the sense of what they say in their criticisms. They say, I'll be honest, I think quite a few of them are just not good enough to coach and manage in the men's game. But because they're men and because the system has been run by men for many years, I think it's easier, they get an easier route into women's football. What message is this putting out to the women who are working so hard to get into the women's game? And that was also Hope Powell, who wrote, who's now the coach of Brighton and Hove Albion. So it's not as if this idea, I mean, we can rage about this. I need to pass this on because I'm getting all furious. Brenda? You want to take that take that baton from her? Yeah, I, I think appointments like this are so frustrating on so many levels, and partly because they seem to convey the idea that women's football is new and it's really hard to find talent. And a lot of times FAs can get away with it in places like Brazil and Argentina and things like that, where the domestic leagues are struggling and there's less attention. But in the case of England, I guess this is partly why it it left so many of us like with our jaws on the floor, is that they've gotten so much attention deservedly for the like recent upstart of the league and also for how, you know, how old their their women's soccer tradition goes back, which is to the very, very beginning of the 20th century. So it's just it, it, it's one of those things where a lot of us were like left with our hands open and shrugging and being like, you've got to be kidding me. If this ca- if this happens in England, then we're all so screwed. Right. I mean, I think I think everybody was collectively outraged and also confused. I mean, in the case of Brazil, Vajau, who was who was given the job of the Brazilian women's national team, never had a single women winning season with a men's team. Wow. Yeah. Not a single winning season with any of the men's teams that he coached. And they removed their first female coach of the women's team. We talked about it on the show after just seven months to bring him back after he had another losing season. So it's a pattern and it's just frustrating that if it's England, I think the rest of us are going like, oh man, nothing's getting better. And Mark Sampson, I mean, he left because of all the stuff with eating Aluko, right? Like that's why there's an empty position here. Do I have that right, Shereen? Well, actually he was technically left Gove because of situations of impropriety oh, uh, with right. an underage player at oh, the time. Oh my God. Okay. And- Yeah, Yeah. so which the FA knew of when they (laughs) hired him. And yes, it gets worse. The FA was aware of all this. They were also aware of Phil Neville's sexist tweets that actually made fun of domestic violence. They knew all of this. And they didn't care, like it it didn't phase them that, you know, this whole thing was acceptable. And I mean, I think part of the thing and for those of our listeners that are Patreon donors, uh, contributors, we did the segment on John Herdman leaving. Now, John Herdman was actually given um, an opportunity and offered to go work with the Lionesses, which he did not take so he could coach the Canadian men's team. Yes, you heard that right. He was like basically a demotion from the women's team to the men's. So it, it's this idea that Brenda talks about, that the idea is that the men's game is superior somehow and those positions, which are more lucrative, are more important. But it doesn't mean that you put in, you know, anyone standing. I mean, basically, my 11-year-old son who plays recreational soccer has the same amount of qualifications as Phil Neville. So, 
And I think my son might be a better coach, quite frankly. And just just to wrap this up, my our friend of the show, Anna Kessel, who's actually head of um, women in football, spoke out about it. And she said, and I think it's really important, she talked about transparency. And you've got to look at the wider picture, she said, less than 10% of coaches in the game are female. And Mark Sampson, when he was hired, he didn't meet the criteria and we're doing this again. So it's not even just the entire system, it's the processes within the system, which are flawed. So basically, we need to trash them all and just get women in these positions who are qualified and ready and willing. This weekend, the New England Patriots will meet the Philadelphia Eagles in Minneapolis, Minnesota for Super Bowl 52. I spoke with two NFL beat writers about the game. Nora Princiati, who covers the New England Patriots for the Boston Globe, gives us the Patriots side. And Kimberly Martin, a writer at the Washington Post who will be the NFC pool reporter, gives us the Eagles. We'll let the underdogs go first. Here's my chat with Kimberly Martin. Can we start by you explaining what your job will be as the NFC pool reporter next week? What does that what does that mean? As the pool reporter, you basically are the reporter that gets to go to practice. I'll be at Eagles practices every day. I'm responsible for watching, taking notes, and then writing up the pool report of what happened at practice. And then so all the other reporters in Minneapolis will read my stuff so they know what happened each day at practice. Let's talk about the Eagles. Going into Sunday, can you give us an idea of what this team's strengths and weaknesses will be? What do you expect from this team when they're actually playing? This is a team that they've adopted the underdog mentality. You know, they had Carson Wentz as their quarterback, their star quarterback. And with him, I believe they started 11-2, first place in the NFC. Philly was rolling, fans are happy, everything's great. And then Carson Wentz tears his ACL and injures his LCL. So then it, it kind of throws everything off and people are looking at this great team and wondering what comes next. Well, backup Nick Foles takes over. And at first people, you know, some people thought, well, this might be it for the Eagles because Nick Foles is their backup, but they're in the Super Bowl. What you have is a team that it's funny to me that they, they considered themselves underdogs and really rallied around that because for so long, all season long, people just thought they were great. But it makes sense because there were so many doubters. What to expect, though, you have a team that thinks they can pull off anything. But the question is, will they? Nick Foles coming off a great game. But you don't, the thing with Foles is you don't know which Nick will show up sometimes. He's been good in the playoffs. But again, the stage, this is the biggest game of his career. So from the quarterback position going against Brady, you'd say the Eagles are definitely a disadvantage there. The Eagles definitely have a great running game with J.H.I.E. and, and LeGarrette Blunt. Aside from this just being the Super Bowl, on the Eagles, you have a lot of guys that either played for the Patriots or came to the Eagles on one-year deals. So they're looking to, this is their time to prove, okay, you know, prove themselves as players, prove that this team can pull off the improbable, which I think a lot of, a lot of people assume it'll be difficult, very difficult to, to knock off the Patriots. Like I said, I think the defense, their D-line will be the key between Fletcher Cox and Vinnie Curry. And they've got a very good defense. Can Foles, again, eliminate turnovers? Can he protect the football? Can they get some some offense going? You know, because they're obviously, the Patriots obviously are going to stop, try to stop the running game. It'll be interesting to see how the matchup unfolds. That was wonderful. Thank you. 
I was wondering if there are any particular stories that you're going to, or that we should be paying attention to that are worthy of attention, might fly under the radar. Maybe another way to ask this question is, what are you looking forward to covering in the run-up to the Super Bowl? From the Eagles standpoint, the biggest story this week is is Nick Foles. I mean, this is a guy who used to play for the Eagles. He's always been a guy that's sort of been not, I don't want to say not good enough, but a couple years ago, he thought about retiring. I think he was at a point where, at that crossroad, I think a lot of players are at, like, you know, do I continue? And he ended up, he went to Kansas City, played for his former Eagles coach there, Andy Reid. And he said it was pretty much a career defining moment. And it, and it sort of helped him. And he said, going to Kansas City, I'm a better person because of that decision. He signed a deal to come back to the Eagles to be Carson Wentz's backup. He understood the deal. But then to be sort of thrust into this spotlight of, okay, now all of this is on you. Really, Nick Foles has, this is his one shot because Carson Wentz will come back from the ACL and he will be the starter again. You know, every year teams teams get these young quarterbacks. You know, Carson Wentz is no different. So he's the future of the Eagles, right? But in this, in the present, it rests on Nick Foles. So what is he going to do with this opportunity? Because who knows where where things go for him. You just made me care about Nick Foles more than I have ever imagined. <laughs> that I will care about Nick Foles. I think more more people care care about Nick Foles after his couple performances. As much as I think the storyline of Super Bowl week and of the game, a lot of it will focus on Brady and Belichick and the Patriots dynasty. Could this be the end? Will they pull it off? You know all that stuff. I think from the Eagles' perspective. They rallied around Nick Foles to this point. Now, can he again pull off the impossible and win it for the city? Everybody there think, is waiting for like the bottom to drop out, you know? So this has been great for the city. It's been a great run. So we'll see if they can pull it off in the end. So then I got to ask, do you have any predictions for the game on Sunday? For this game, you just want an entertaining game. It would be a great story. Don't kill me, Patriots fans, but it would be a great story if the Eagles pulled this off. Just because of the season, you know, you have your great quarterback and then you go to his backup and it's sort of like, Ugh, and then he wins it for you. I think that'd be a phenomenal story. I feel like, and the Eagles, I think, are five point underdogs or five and a half. I think they were five and a half when it opened. I got to be honest, I, I don't see the Eagles winning. I think the Patriots are just, when Tom Brady, when people doubt him or where there are questions about the Patriots way, and and I think we're, we're nearing the end of Brady Belichick, I think he's more determined than ever to sort of put a stamp on it. So I think it'll be decided by way more than five points. I think the Patriots will probably win by like eight or 10 or something like that. That's what I'm thinking. That's what I'm thinking. I'm, I'm hoping I'm hoping that it'll just be a good game, but I see the Patriots coming out with the win. So Kimberly went with the Patriots. Let's hear now from Nora Princiati on those reigning Super Bowl champions. So going into the game on Sunday, what should people be looking for as far as like the strengths of this Patriots team and maybe some of their weaknesses? The strength of this team, you always start with Tom Brady. The game is never over, as we learn <laughs> repeatedly. I can't tell you how many times I've just seen my timeline on Twitter. It's like everybody tweets the same thing, which is like, I've seen this movie before. It's like, well, yeah. And then, but then beyond that, you know, they can beat you in a lot of ways. Rob Gronkowski is obviously like an all world level tight end. He and Brady at times together are just sort of unstoppable. 
They also have four solid running backs who have two greater and lesser extents contributed over the course of the year. Within those guys, three of them really, James White, Dion Lewis, and Rex Burkhead, are all threats in the passing game. That, at various times, has made them really, really, really dangerous. They have guys like Gronkowski, but they also have like Brandon Cooks to stretch the field. It's really that combination of just the number of things that they have on offense to beat you that I think gives them their their biggest advantage. As far as weaknesses go, it's kind of what defense shows up on any given day because they've shown that they can play really well, but there were days and most of them were in September, but not all of them where they would just, you know, bunch formations would just trip them up and things that you don't associate with a Bill Belichick coach team would just screw them up and they they wouldn't be able to to handle it. And you would see these just blown coverages all over the field, miscommunication. It's just that inconsistency where you're a little bit like, this could go really badly. It probably won't, but it could go really badly. Are there any Super Bowl week stories that we should be paying attention to or, or maybe some that are like worthy of attention, but might fly under the radar? Like what kind of stuff will you be looking for as a reporter? I'll be interested to see how the sort of Brady Belichick hoopla that's that's been buzzing around. You know, much of it. I don't. I hope that doesn't sound like I'm discounting it because a lot of the reporting has been in the Globe and it's been really good reporting. But just sort of how all of the the stuff about tension in the organization and even even beyond tension, just sort of who's going to get the credit finally for this unprecedented level of success, kind of how that takes shape over the course of Super Bowl week, because it's interesting to get a sense of just sort of where everybody is on it when everybody is in the same place together as, as they are for the Super Bowl. I'll just, this is probably more me than anybody else, but you know, Chris Long and LeGarrette Blunt were beloved Patriots, even Chris Long just for a year. It'll be cool to see those guys. And then I will say just one one thing that I've been working on is like we hear the word distractions a lot in sports as a whole, and especially I think around the time of the playoffs. And it doesn't always mean what it's supposed to mean. Like a lot of the time it just means I don't want to talk about that. So I'm going to say that it's a distraction or I don't know what else to ask you. So I'm going to ask if something is a distraction or I don't want to ask a direct question. So I'm going to lump everything under the name of distractions. And it's just not very specific. I spent some time talking to players just sort of about how they would define the word distraction. Like what is a distraction to them? And they were all really funny about it because they were like, truthfully, there's not a lot when you're in a game is going to be distracting you. You can read a newspaper article about your team and come into the meeting the next day and learn your assignments and keep your head in the playbook. And that's fine. But then, you know, I I got into an interesting conversation with Devin McCourty, who was involved with a lot of the social justice activism that happened to the for the entire year, but you know, got the most attention at the beginning of the year. I think sometimes they heard negative feedback or people trying to get them to stop doing that by calling it a distraction and by calling it something that, you know, just wasn't on the field gridiron football. And and sometimes there are people in this game who get a little bit scared when guys are individuals and, and have their own priorities and their own thoughts. So we were laughing about it because a few guys who were really involved in that were 
Devin, and then Chris Long and Malcolm Jenkins. Obviously, guys who had really successful football seasons, they're going to the Super Bowl. It can't have distracted them too much. That was sort of an interesting thing to think about. I love that stuff where it's like a sort of like a sports cliche that doesn't actually make sense. And then you try to figure out like what's actually going on here. So yeah, so that was a fun one. Yeah, I wonder if that will come back up this week. I wonder if all that discussion around that will come back up yeah, this week. Well, yeah, I think to just to a certain extent because the guys on the teams. That's interesting. So the last thing I got to ask, do you have any predictions for this game? I have, uh, I'll be honest with you, I've not dug into enough Eagles film to really have a good grasp on them yet. I See, the thing is, is that the whole whole here, I've loved that roster. I almost always, like when we do picks in the newspaper, I almost always pick the Patriots just because it usually works out pretty well. I, I feel like I'm going to go with the Eagles in a, in a pretty low scoring game. I just think that roster is so, so complete. And, and then I'm going to second guess myself because I'm going with Nick Foles over Tom Brady. And that's kind of, uh, let's, I'll go just, just right off the top of my head here. I will say Eagles 21, Patriots 17. Oh, they're going to score more than 17 points. Let's say 24, 21 Eagles. And Nora went with the Eagles. Well, you'll just have to tune into the Super Bowl on NBC on Sunday, February 4th at 6.30 p.m. Eastern to see who was right with their pick. Thank you to both Kimberly and Nora for joining us. Now it's time for everyone's favorite segment, the Burn Pile, where we pile up all the things we've hated this week in sports and set them aflame. Lindsay, you want to get us started? I would love to. So this past week, weekend, I should say, we had a wonderful story where Julie Ertz, the a player on the U.S. women's national team, and her husband, Zach Ertz, who is a player on the Philadelphia Eagles. So Julie Ertz was playing with the national team against Denmark, I believe, and they were playing a friendly, and she scored, and it was a great win for Team USA. And at the same time, the Eagles, you know, trounced the Vikings and her husband's teammate to the Super Bowl. And there was this beautiful viral clip of her finding out after the game that he made the Super Bowl and every all of her teammates were so excited. And it was just this, I just love sports power couples. <laughs> it was just like a wonderful like <laughs> sports power couple like moment. But guess what? A white man decided to ruin it. <laughs> so Frank Isola of the New York Daily News tweeted, quote, have to respect the dedication of Julie Ertz with her husband playing for a trip to the Super Bowl. She was with the national team for a friendly versus Denmark and she scored. Wow. <sighs> wow. <laughs> Breaking <laughs> woman <Yeah>. loves her job, <laughs> appreciates her job. Yeah. Dis- her job matters to her. <laughs> like, Guess what? Women have responsibilities that don't involve being in the stands cheering on your man. Like, how do you, how do you, even come to that like mental uh-huh. <laughs> like how, how do what are the mental gymnastics to get there except just that you your brain is so ingrained in the patriarchy that you literally do think it's kind of cute that julie Ertz like didn't you know was so dedicated to this little sport she <laughs> loves you know that she was playing it's gross. He went on to keep trying to like justify it by like saying, "Oh, <laughs> oh, if he, I'm, just, I mean, if he had, an, if 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 Zach Ertz had an ex, like had a preseason game at the same time, like she was in the World Cup, I would be saying the same thing about him." But that just like 
you're just not understanding how soccer works because yes, it was a friendly, but it also counted towards their ranking and, you know, going against Denmark because they have had such a good showing in international competitions recently, whereas the U.S. women have been struggling like it met, you know what I mean? Like this wasn't a just for fun game. And so it was just so condescending, so demeaning. And so Frank has all of that tweet goes on to the burn pile. Burn. 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 All right. So for more on people with garbage tweets, I present to you the tennis player named, I shit you not, Tennis with a Y, <laughs> He's from Tennessee, naturally. That is all real. So, <laughs> he made an incredible and unexpected run to the quarterfinals of the Australian Open this year, which meant he received the most scrutiny on him that he has, ever has in his career. And that means people reading your old tweets, and boy, did tennis have some. So in January, Sangren retweeted a video posted by Nicholas Fuentes, a young alt-right commentator, a former host of a podcast called Alt America First, and an attendee of the violent Charlottesville rally. And in November last year, Sangren seemed to support Pizzagate, that weirdo conspiracy that was built on the premise of a child trafficking ring being run out of a Washington pizzeria. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> that was supposedly what? connected to important people in D.C., including Hillary Clinton, and it ended in a guy showing up with a gun who was going to break up the ring, and he shot him into the air. It was a whole thing. Sandgren <laughs> tweeted about it, quote, it's sickening and the collective evidence is too much to ignore. Also last year in a conversation with James Blake, a black former U.S. tennis player, Sandgren denied systemic racism exists in the U.S. because the country had elected a black president. Okay. So these tweets led to an exchange during the Australian Open when a reporter asked Sandgren, do you feel that you support some of the alt-right movement? And Sandgren replied, no, I don't. I find some of the content interesting, but no, I don't. Not at all. You find some of the content interesting? Huh. So Sandgren deleted all but one tweet and has since posted twice. One is an apology of a specific, quote, gay club tweet. And that one was from 2012 in which he said a visit to a gay club had, quote, left his eyes bleeding. Oh, man, this guy. The other was posted on Saturday, and it's an image of a statement in which he feigns some kind of ignorance and then apologizes for socializing with people from the alt-right. Maybe that statement was a response to our queen, Serena, who had tweeted directly to Sandgren a few days earlier, quote, I don't need or want one but there is an entire group of people that deserves an apology. Who knows if we'll ever see this guy make a run at a tournament like this again, but reporters should keep asking him about this stuff. He plays in a global diverse sport as his job. Burn all those shitty gross tweets and the views they express. Burn. Burn. All right, Brenda, what do you want to throw on the incinerator? Well, because of our giant Nasser burn last week, I'm a bit late to this game, but trust me, it didn't get the attention it deserved. I want to burn Argentine soccer player Carlos Tevez's statements recently about raising children. For those of you who don't know the fellow, Tevez is a beloved player who's played for the national team and now for Boca Juniors, previously played for Man U, Man City, and Juventus. So if you don't follow soccer, he's a big deal. Anyways, Tevez said he needed to take his son Lito to the barrio. And just to give you a sense of his neighborhood, it's called Fort Apache. So there's quite a lot of racism laden in, in this whole context as well. But he says he took Lito to the neighborhood, the barrio, where he could get slapped around because all of the attention from his women family members, his mother, his grandparents, has be- would bend his wrist. 
has bent his wrist. Um, okay. And uh, this isn't the first time that Tevez has said something like this. It's it's a pretty consistent pattern. So, you know, I, it, Tevez for me joins compatriot Diego Maradona and Uruguayan striker Luis Suarez on my personal figurative burn pile of uber talented South American players who need to just leave their misogyny in 1818. So I want to I burn, burn Tevez's comments and the lack of outrage that I wish was happening in Buenos Aires in global soccer about this. Burn. burn. Torch it. All right, Shereen, what's on your burn pile this week? This week, I am burning Ron Duguay's ridiculously sexist comment. Now, last week... In uh, a Rangers loss to the Kings, Ron Duguay, who is a commentator, actually said, he was complaining about the officiating, about the referees, said, quote, I think these guys would have been better off doing a women's hockey today because the way they did the officiating, they were kind of soft, end quote. Now, mm-hmm. let's take a yeah groan. Now, let's just sort of <laughs> unpack this douchebaggery. Let's look <laughs> at what that really means. It means is he saying that the officials are acting, you know, sort of weaker and relating it to women's context? Is he saying that the actual game, the women's game, hockey game, which we love and are powerful and have not only paved the way for like fair play, but have like literally blessed Canada and the US, well, our Olympic medals, your world championships, like, what does that even mean? Yes, perhaps you could argue that there's less, you know, cross checking in the women's game, but there's also less in Olympic hockey as well in men's college hockey and in European leagues. But and and also there's a really great piece about this that our friend Beth Boyle uh, Macklin uh, wrote and her comments are really good and she talks about the effects on this on young girls. So there are people, there are young folks watching this and getting Ron's statements. So Ron, pack away your sexism. And actually, in an interesting turn of events, Hillary Knight started replying, and I'm getting a lot of joy from Hillary Knight's <laughs> Twitter fire this week. But he started blocking everybody who was opposing him. And uh, happy to say that I was blocked by Ron, but that's okay. I'll sleep very well at night. There's no problem about that. So I want to take those sexist, ridiculous, inaccurate comments and burn them. Burn. After all that burning, it's time to celebrate some remarkable women in sports. I want to lead off this badass woman of the week segment by reading a tweet of WNBA star, Chanae Aguamake, that fits the moment in this particular week really well. Quote, over the last year, we've witnessed U.S. women's soccer and hockey fight for fair pay. The WNBA stand for racial equality and U.S. women's gymnastics deliver justice against sexual abuse. Once again, female athletes are fighting for themselves because that is the only way. So proud. Now our honorable mentions. First, Anna Patel is the new director of player personnel for the Colorado Rapids, making her the highest-ranking female executive in Major League Soccer. Anya Shrubsole, an English cricket player who has made history as the first woman on the cover of the Wisden Cricketer's Almanac. Alisar Bador becomes the first-ever Middle Eastern female referee to officiate in top division after participating in a Syrian Cup game. Morgan Reed of Duke University, drafted to the NWSL by The Courage, wrote a powerful piece in the Players' Tribune highlighting the sexual objectification of women college athletes. And Liang Enchuo won the girls' title at the Australian Open on Saturday, becoming the first player from Taiwan to win a girls' junior Grand Slam in singles. And now, Lindsay, tell us who the badass woman of the week is. 
Our badass woman of the week is Caroline Wozniacki, who finally won her first Grand Slam at this Australian Open. This was her 43rd major. She used to be known as the slamless number one. She was the number one player on the WTA for a couple of years on and off without having a major title. And now with this title, she's back to the number one ranking with her slam. It is really, really incredible. I love this stat. She will hold the number one ranking for the first time in, in six years. And with it, she'll win. She'll beat the record for the amount of time between stints at number one. Okay. Serena Williams used to have that record at five years and 29 days. Serena Williams and Caroline Wozniacki are the unlikeliest of great friends. And I love <laughs> their friendship. And I want to read you Serena's tweet from this, which was quote, I got too nervous to watch, but woke up to Caroline Wozniacki, new number one in Aussie Open Champ. So awesome. So happy. Are those tears? Yep, they are. From a year ago to today, I'm so proud. My friend, so proud. Literally can't even sleep now. So that was just amazing from Serena. And I, I want to give a, you know, a, a lofty honorable mention to Simona Halep, who was there was an amazing final. Wozniacki won 7-6, 3-6, 6-4. It was two hours and 49 minutes. Simona Halep, who saved match points in two different epic matches this, this tournament, was just incredible. I really hope she gets her slam trophy. She really deserves it. She spent four hours in the hospital being treated for de- dehydration after this final. So, whoo! So Wozniacki and Halep, you made us you made us proud. Thank you for repping women's tennis and women's sports and for being badasses. And to round out this episode, let's talk about what is good in our worlds this week. I'm going to start because mine was awesome. Amira was in Austin this week as part of a whirlwind trip through Texas that she took. And I got to share some time with her on Friday. We ate some Tex-Mex. It was lovely. And I'm very lucky because I will actually get to see her again in a few weeks because I'm going to Penn State to give a talk on Valentine's Day. So yay. Mm-hmm. Shereen, what's good with you? Well, I'm going to do some skiing this week and I'm excited oh. about that. I just came back from an awesome uh, quick trip to Vancouver. But most importantly, I like to tell people when they ask me how many kids I have, whatnot, I say I have three boys and a soccer player. And my beautiful, spirited daughter, Jihad, is trained. 16 on Tuesday and I'm so proud of her and I love her and so we're gonna she's in the middle of exams right now but I'm really looking forward to that she has soccer practice the night of her birthday so she's asked me to make halal jello shots which is what I'm gonna do (laughs) lovely Brenda mine's kind of in one well they're both embarrassing one (laughs) is one is that it took me until this time in my life to figure out you could cut a kiwi in half and use a spoon to eat it Instead of oh, having a life hack, it, it is. It's total life hack. And it means, see, with kids, I had to do that over and over again while I like would do small cuts in my fingers and then re-injure them as the juice seeped in. And this is just oh. amazing. You just cut down the middle, you take a spoon and you eat it. And it's so simple, but I also feel so dumb. And that it took me this Wait, long. You, you didn't know that? <laughs> no, no, I did not. It was my right. eleven-year-old that was not, like, "What are you doing? Peeling off the skin?" Yeah. What? You're not judging? No. Don't judge. Don't judge. I, I, I was still putting knives in the toaster until last week. And so, you know, what? So and then Barcelona, <laughs> Barcelona plays twice this week, and today, today, in about six hours, we're recording on Sunday and Thursday. And so that always makes me so happy. 
Awesome. Lindsay? Yeah. Well, right now I'm thankful that Brenda hasn't burned her house down or chopped off any of her fingers. So. <laughs> or electrocuted myself. <laughs> yeah. So that is professor. very good. <laughs> Just, <laughs> very good. Really yes, beat the I'm odds bad. there. <laughs> But uh, anyways, you know, I have January has been a whirlwind month. I had, you know, this NASA trial really took up a lot of my life. And this, you know, I went home for for a family wedding. And I don't know, I just feel like I haven't been settled all this week. So I'm excited, as lame as it sounds to just kind of get into a routine. And that's what's good in my life is that I'm going to kind of get my life a little bit back together and try and settle into a good routine for 2018 starting this week. And I know that's lame, but gosh, I'm excited about it. (laughs) I love routine. So it sounds amazing to me. That's it for this week's episode. Thank you all for joining us. And thank you to Hofstra University for their continued support. You can find Burn It All Down on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. If you want to subscribe to Burn It All Down, you can do so on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Google Play, and TuneIn. For information about the show and links and transcripts for each episode, check out our website, burnitalldownpod.com. You can also email us from the site to give us feedback. We'd love to hear from you. If you enjoyed this week's show, please share this episode with family, with friends, work colleagues, neighbors, the cashier at the grocery store, anyone you talk sports with, whomever you think would be interested in Burn It All Down. Also, please rate the show at whichever place you listen to it. The ratings help us reach new listeners who need this feminist sports podcast but don't yet know it exists. One final huge thank you goes out to all our patrons who are part of our Patreon campaign. If you're not yet a patron, you can sign up to be a monthly sustaining donor to Burn It All Down at patreon.com slash burnitalldown. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash burnitalldown. As a patron, you can get exclusive content you can't get anywhere else, such as Patreon-only podcast segments, a monthly newsletter, and even a chance to contribute to the burn pile. That's it for Burn It All Down. For Shereen Ahmed, Lindsay Gibbs, and Brenda Elsie, I'm Jessica Luther. Until next week. Uh